Uh, so it's a privilege for me to be able to be preaching God's Word to y'all this morning in a church that's meant so much to me and my family over the last four years. So I'm very thankful to be here. All right. If you have your Bibles, would you please open them up to Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. That's Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Now, we're going to be dropping, kind of parachuting right into the middle of this story in the book of Acts. And it's about, it's a story you may be familiar with. It's about the apostle Peter and about this Gentile named Cornelius and his family and his household. Now, the actual events of the story that we're going to read about actually took place and were recounted for the first time in Acts chapter 10. And in our passage today, we kind of see some of the fallout of what happened from those events. And we see Peter, who had just experienced these events, he's now going and he's going to go share with Jewish Christians what had just happened to him and what the Lord had just done. So that's kind of the context of what we're about to read. But before we read it, uh, let's go ahead and pray and let's ask God for His help. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that because of Your great love for us that You've displayed toward us in giving Him over to death on our behalf and in giving us life by Your Holy Spirit, Lord, I ask that You would freshly open the eyes of our hearts and our minds this morning to understand Your Word. Help us to see how gracious You are and help us to go and do likewise, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so let's read Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Here is God's Word. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began, and he explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, 
then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Amen. This is God's Word. Now, I don't know if you've ever, ever seen this with little kids that you've been around, but it's always funny, and it's definitely frustrating for the parents to watch that if you have at least a pair of siblings who are trying to interact with a mutual friend who's come into their space, right? Because if you think about that friend jumping in their car or coming to their dinner table, I mean, just what can happen? Like, use your imagination if you've never experienced it, right? Both of the kids desperately want to be with that friend, but they also don't really want to give up that spot in the car, right? Or their seat, at the, their seat at the table that they're used to. And then you'll have the situation that will inevitably arise where the friend will very innocently sit in one of the sibling's seats, right? And instead of the mentality of the child whose seat was taken being like, okay, hey, look, great. No problem. Like, we got a friend over. It's not a big deal. We'll move around. We'll accommodate. We're happy that they're here. No big deal. This is awesome. No. Like, what, what often happens, right? I mean, total breakdown. Total breakdown can occur. It certainly has with our children. And why? Why is that? Well, I think part of the reason, at least, is because there's two competing desires going on in their hearts. One, they want to be able to realize this ideal of having a friend over and of being with them. But then secondly, they, um, they want to have that but they don't also want to give up their seat at the table. They don't want to, have, they don't want to be able to have that along with the discouragement, uh, the discomfort, or the, cha- or the change that may be demanded of them for having to move around the table, right? Because it's going to mean that they're going to have to sit in a different seat. They may have to sit now in a different relation to mom and dad than they used to. They may have to sit closer to someone than they had before and further away from another person than they had in the past, right? Well, so in our passage today... I think that what we're going to find is that when it comes to making room at the table of our lives, of our subcommunities, of our churches that we're a part of, that there is something of what I just described in our hearts as well. And it was there in the hearts of the very first Christians in the early church. Now, I told you earlier that Peter's repeating this amazing story that occurred in Acts 10 of how God brought Peter and Cornelius together and how Cornelius and all his household were saved. They were actually converted and had the Holy Spirit poured out on them. And in this passage, in Acts 11, the new people on the scene are the Jewish Christians that he's speaking to. It's them that Peter is speaking to in this passage, and it's their old way of thinking that God is working to change. You see, these were people who had believed the gospel, but there were still many old ways of thinking about others that needed transforming. They still had certain man-made requirements that they were going to want to see met before they could truly extend the right hand of fellowship to other believers. And so the main idea that I think is being pressed home to us this morning in this passage is this, if you're a note taker. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And yes, I'm stealing that. It's a Bible verse. It's in Romans 15, 7. But I think that this passage, this idea in this passage is kind of worked out in this threefold movement. And so this is where we're going to go this morning. First, we're going to look at our natural stinginess. 
Then we're going to look at what it looks like to see God's gracious initiative. And then finally, we're going to look at our transformation to becoming welcomers. So that's our natural stinginess, seeing God's gracious initiative, and our transformation to becoming welcomers. All right. So let's get into the first point. Point one, our natural stinginess. This is coming from verses one to three. Now, let's get our minds a little bit about what's been going on in the book of Acts up until this point. In the book of Acts, even from the very first chapters, you see this literal geographical movement as God moves the gospel out from Jerusalem into Judea and even to Samaria, which was radical enough for many of the Jews. And now in chapters 10 and 11, he's starting to bring it to the beginning of the ends of the earth in their minds, right? To the Gentiles. And so if anything that had happened so far was radical, this would have been the most radical thing yet. And so what happens? Well, quite naturally, word about what had happened hits the metaphorical newswires and it spreads down south back to Judea and Jerusalem. So look at verse 1. Look at what it says. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. I mean, the Gentiles had received the word of God. I mean, this was a momentous occasion, right? However... If there'd been any joy, it was also mixed with this level of disquiet. A disquiet about how it had all gone down and how it had involved Peter lodging and eating with uncircumcised men. I right, look at verses 2 and 3. It says, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. So get this, right? I mean, so when Peter, the lead apostle, who had just seen this amazing work of God in the lives of these Gentiles, finally made his way back down to Jerusalem, this group of Jewish Christians criticizes him. So they had some concerns about what had happened. And notice what their concerns were about. They centered around the fact that Peter had, one, he'd gone to uncircumcised men, and two, that he'd eaten with them. Well, you may ask, why would this be a problem for them? Well, first, remember where we are. This isn't too far removed from the time of Jesus. And these Jewish Christians had grown up under this old covenant system their entire lives. Now, the Jews at that time would probably have gone back to Leviticus 11 to legitimize this view where God lays out all of these laws about clean and unclean food, right? He, God gives this long list of, of these types of animals and these birds and these fish and these reptiles that would be considered clean, which meant that they could eat them. And then those that should be considered by them as unclean, which means they shouldn't eat them. And then on top of that, those that were unclean, they were not even to touch. And so unclean meant don't eat the food and don't touch that food, okay? And then extrapolating from that command of God, the Jews at the current time would then argue that this meant that they really shouldn't associate at all with Gentile people, since one, those Gentiles, you know, they didn't care about these food laws and, and they'd no doubt, whether purposefully or accidentally, caused the Jews to become unclean. And then secondly, you know, maybe really God's intention was that the Jews would be isolated from this sinful pagan world as much as possible and, and they could come to them if they needed something. You see, so many of them had not only misread their Bibles, the Old Testament, in, regard, in regards to God's Messiah, but they'd also misread it in terms of God's mission. All right? So here you go. 
you had this Jewish commandment of God, and then you had on top of it this Jewish tradition. And I think this is an important distinction that I want us to get. You have the actual commandment of God about clean and unclean foods, which none of the Jewish Christians had understood yet was fulfilled in Christ and is part of what's happening here. But then on top of that, you have this Jewish tradition, this man-made tradition stacked on top of it that said they weren't even to associate with Gentile people beyond what was absolutely necessary. All right? This was the reality that they'd grown up under. So they criticized Peter. Right? Instead of rejoicing in the gospel going forth, they're wondering, they're questioning, they're criticizing. You might say that they were a little bit stingy, right? The gospel is for Israel. You want it? Become a Jew. Become like us, they may have said. And so here's a question for us today. Are we really all that different? Right? In fact, I believe that if we're honest with ourselves, that we'll find that we're all quite naturally stingy. I mean, sure, we aren't first century Jews, and the people that we hold at arm's length aren't Gentiles, but but I think that one of the challenges here for us in this passage is to identify who are the quote-unquote Gentiles in our lives. And I think that we are like them if we start to really think about it. And that we've all grown up, right, with certain ways of thinking, certain preferences when it comes to the type of people that we want to spend time with. Whether that be primarily based on the bigger issues that we talk about like race, but also social status and gender. And then even down that, past to things like, down to things like personality type, cultural ethos, right? Common hobbies, political viewpoints, theological viewpoints, convictions about food, clothing, child rearing, education, Sports, the way we run our families or handle relationships, and on and on. And notice, none of those things are necessarily sinful in and of themselves. The problem isn't that we have our differences. The problem comes in with how we wield our differences. Right? We all have things that we're tempted to let become the determiner of who we're going to have our relationships with and who we'll, en- and who we'll be around, right? And the reality is, is that we enjoy being around those who are like us. We enjoy being around those who share our perspective. And you know what? We have a harder time being around those who don't or who can't relate as well. We may be even downright hostile to those who are actually on the other end of the spectrum from us on some of these things. And this is how the world is. This is how we are naturally. Stingy. Isolating. A little partial. A little prejudice, right? Now let's go back to this idea again of our belonging to our church community as sitting at a table in a big room full of other tables, right? When we first became a Christian or when we first moved to the town that we live in or we first came to the church that we're now a part of, right? It was as if we didn't have a table to sit at. Like we were walking into this big room and there were lots of tables and people were sitting at them and we didn't know that many of them, but they all seemed to know one another, right? And just think about the anxiety of those moments that we've all experienced and that some of you may even be currently experiencing, depending on where you're at in this process. But for many of us who've stuck with it, right, we eventually found a table to sit at. We found a spot where we were at least a little bit comfortable, where we were at least a little bit known, if not much more. And because of that previous experience of tablelessness, 
to have finally found a table to sit in at the big room of our church is a huge thing for us, right? It was a huge thing for us in terms of finding stability in our lives and our relationships and our sense of belonging. Friends, those are beautiful things and they're extremely important for us. But here's where the problem can come in. See, because of how important it was for us to find that table that we could sit at, it's not always easy for us to now be having an eye out for other tableless people, right? And it's also easy for us to start to maybe kind of think that our table is really the one that matters, even though there's lots of other tables gathered around us in this big room. Now, I think that part of the reason is because of how much we're enjoying our table, which is a great thing. And another part of the reason is because of we just kind of like just where we are, right? We like exactly where our seats are in relation to our other friends that we've made and the ministries we've become a, become a part of or positions we've gotten, etc. And, you know, how much room there is between each one of us. And to have to make more room at our table for someone else or to have to converse too much between our tables means introducing discomfort in our table that has been so comfortable and good for us. You know, it may mean having to shift around and having to sit closer to some people and, and further away from others that we don't want to and, and having to take a slightly different position than we'd had before. And then I think that sometimes the way that we consciously or subconsciously attempt to protect ourselves against that is to start to add some rules for who's welcome at our table and who isn't. And often when that happens, what we're doing is we're not actually making up new rules and ways to keep people in or out, but all we're doing is we're bringing out those old rules those that we've already had in our hearts and our minds about who's in and about who's out when it comes to our lives. You know, we're like, yeah, look, I mean, we'll be happy, you know, for that person to go sit at that table on the other side of the room, right? But we've put up rules in our hearts about who will extend that hearty right hand of full fellowship to as believers and even welcome them into the very tables of our lives. But friends, now that we're in Christ, God wants to change that. And He's working. He is at work to graciously and kindly change our hearts to make us more welcoming, more loving, more inclusive of one another to begin to identify these ways that we've brought in our man-made rules and traditions and stack them on top of what God has said about who's in and who's out. But friends, this takes time. And God is graciously working to change us. And He's doing it in all of us. None of us, not one of us in this room are excluded from this problem and this work or have reached the end of it. And so that's the good news. That God is working on our natural sin, Jesus. That we're not left alone with this. And He wanted to work on it in these Jewish Christians as well. And so that brings us to the next point this morning. It's the solution. It's the cure. It's, it's the medicine that can heal our natural stinginess. It's seeing God's gracious initiative. Seeing God's gracious initiative. That's our second point from verses 4 to 15. Now, you see for Peter as well as for the Jewish Christians and also for us, we need to see that, right? We need to see who God is. We need to see what He has done. We need to see what His will is. We need to see His gracious initiative. And this is exactly what Peter does for the Jewish Christians, right? Don't you love how it says He laid it out for them in order? Like He doesn't rebuke them 
or scold them or lazily dismiss their criticism. He understands. Like something significant has happened. His thinking had been changed. And they weren't there. They need to know what had happened with Peter and Cornelius. And so he carefully walks them through it and he shows them what God has done. Now, I like how commentator John Stott describes what happens here in these verses 4 to 15. He says, It took four successive hammer blows of divine revelation before Peter's racial and religious prejudice was overcome. And so that's what Peter starts to recount here. He starts to recount how God and his kindness had saved these Gentiles and how God in his kindness had changed Peter's thinking. And the amazing thing about this story, as we start to look at it, is that Peter really had so little to do with it. I mean, God was the one that brought it all about. So let's look here. Let's look at what God had done. Let's look at the first hammer blow using John Stott's terminology. The divine vision in verses 4 to 10. All right? So here Peter is, he's praying, he's just doing his own thing while he's waiting to eat, and then all of a sudden this trance comes over him and he has this supernatural vision. Right, God just did it. I mean, it was his initiative. God took the action into his own hands. Now Peter sees this large sheet-like thing, right, being let down from heaven, and he sees all kinds of animals and beasts of prey and birds of the air and reptiles in it. And then a voice says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Oh, what does Peter do there, right? He's like, by no means, Lord. You know, nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. He's like, look, it hasn't even entered my mouth, Lord, much less have I eaten of this stuff. But then the voice comes a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And then this all happens three times in a row, one after the next after the next, and it's gone. And so we have the divine vision, right? God sovereignly, He graciously takes the initiative and He gives Peter this vision. And then verses 11 and 12, we have the second hammer blow, the divine command. Look at it with me. I love how Peter is explaining it to them here, right? It's like he's scratching his head and he's like, look, God just gave me this vision. I'm still, you know, trying to figure out what exactly it was and what all that meant. And then all of a sudden, these guys are at my door knocking. Sent to me from another city, Caesarea, a Gentile city. Told to come look for me by an angel. And then get this. The Spirit says to me, go with them. Not making any distinction. Not telling them to make sure to avoid being unclean or anything. He just said, go. Now, I don't know if Peter would have gone on his own, but the Holy Spirit said, go. And so he obediently went. And so God graciously takes the initiative, right, to not only give Peter the divine vision that we saw, but also give him this clear divine command to go. And then look at verses 13 and 14 with me. We have the divine preparation. All right, if it wasn't already obvious that these guys showing up right when they did and all of this stuff happening already, that God was in this and that he was preparing the way, well, these verses sure make it clear, right? I mean, evidently in working in Peter, in addition to working in Peter, God had also been working in this Gentile man named Cornelius. One in a vision and one through an angel. Right? God was at work on both ends. He's the one doing all of this. He's speaking to Peter. He's speaking to Cornelius. God was bringing them both together. And so we've had three gracious hammer blows to Peter's prejudice 
demonstrating God's desire to save Gentiles, the divine vision, the divine command, the divine preparation, and fourth and finally is surely the most amazing, the divine action. Look at verse 15 with me. He says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. So let's get our, our heads around it for a second. Peter and his fellow Jewish believers right, made their way up to Cornelius' house in Caesarea. And a large number is gathered there. It was his whole household. And Peter walks in and he finds out that the angel had told them to ask him to give the message to them. And so he begins to share this message with them about Jesus. And it seemed like Peter wasn't really done speaking yet when all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls on them. One thing that I'm curious about is what else it was that, you know, Peter was going to say next. I mean, we won't ever know for sure. And maybe he really didn't know what he was going to say next. Like, I just, I just kind of like wonder to myself, like if he and his Jewish friends were on the way over and that they'd kind of talked about it as they were, as they were on the way there, you know, maybe pondering, you know, how exactly should the gospel be presented to a group of Gentiles? Okay, you know, I mean, let's, you know, maybe they were like, all right, let's, share the gospel with them, but I mean, do we, do we then tell them how they need to become Jews first since, you know, the message is for Israel? I mean, can they even really be saved in the way that we can? Well, whatever it was, what's so amazing here is that it doesn't matter what Peter was going to say next because God took the initiative and God answered the question for him. As Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on them, which means that they didn't need to do anything else, Right? And just as in Acts 2, when Jesus poured the Spirit out on the day of Pentecost on all the Jewish people who had believed in Jesus, so the same exact thing happens here to these Gentiles. Now see, God wasn't just saving the Gentiles, but He was making a public statement to all the Jewish Christians. And that public statement is where the message this morning really comes home to us. Because here's what the statement was. It was and it is this. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Like it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what you've done, or where you've come from. There's only one requirement to be made right with God. One requirement to be made clean in His sight. One requirement to be a full member of God's people. And that is faith in Jesus Christ. You see, God had taken the initiative. And Peter saw it. And now the Jewish Christians had it recounted to them. Do we see it? Like, do we see that nothing commends us to God except for Jesus' blood and righteousness? Not all of these other convictions and preferences that we want to force others to conform to. I mean, don't we understand that before we were saved, everything about us deserved hell? We were dead in our sin. We were without hope. But God worked in our lives, right? God took the initiative. God came to save us. God plucked us out from among billions and He chose to save us, right? Nothing about us stood out. We blended right in with the rest of sinful humanity. But God, in His amazing mercy, in His amazing grace, met us in our darkness, breathed life into us, turned our dead, stony hearts into pulsating hearts of flesh, and He gave us the gift of eternal life with Him. This is how Christ has welcomed us. And He's calling us 
to welcome one another on that same basis. Because notice, right? It's not having our man-made requirements fulfilled in others that we're to look to, but it's seeing God's gracious initiative and listening to what He has said, right? And so, God having shown Peter His gracious initiative and having shown it to the Jewish Christians and even to us as well, He wants that to then produce something in us. He wants to use it to transform us into becoming welcomers of one another. And so that brings us to the last point this morning. Our transformation to becoming welcomers. First, look at, let's look at verses 16 to 18. So after Peter saw what had happened, right, he tells the Jewish Christians how he remembered what Jesus had said. Uh, and look at verse 16 with me. And he's remembering what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. He says, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he's like, all right. If Jesus was the one who poured out the Spirit on us, then He was the one who poured out the Spirit on them. And they didn't have to become Jews first. All they did was believe. And so the implications were clear for Peter. And he lets the Jewish Christians know the conclusion that he came to as his own thinking had been changed. And as he tells them, he also explicit, implicitly challenges them as well. Look at verse 17. He says, If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I mean, Peter's thinking had been transformed. Like he was able, by God's grace, to freely welcome these Gentiles as fellow believers. We learn later that he'd gone in and he'd actually eaten with them and had stayed with them for some days. And now here he was defending them to his Jewish friends. And we know also from later Scripture that this would be a continual struggle for him. But here's the good news is that God was working on him. And so he's walked the Jewish Christians through all of this and here's their response. Look at verse 18 with me. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Right? When they had heard it all for themselves and had seen God's gracious initiative, they fell silent and they glorified God. And I think that many of them started to have their thinking changed here. Oh boy, would they still have more run-ins with this and much more teaching would be required. But God was working on them. And friends, He's still working on us. Like part of the issue for them was what were the requirements to be a full member of the people of God? Now remember, under the Jewish system, you could have Gentiles who were God-fearers like Cornelius was who could kind of move towards the Israelite religion. But because they never partook of circumcision and certain other things, they could never make the jump to having the complete rights and privileges of full Israelite people. And God was showing them that faith alone in Jesus Christ was now the sole requirement. You see, the coming of Jesus had massive implications for what marked a person as in or out. Listen to this amazing quote from G.K. Beale. He's a theologian of the Old and New Testaments. He says this, Christ has abolished that part of the law which divided Jews from Gentile. 
so that they could become one. Gentiles no longer needed to adapt the signs and customs of national Israel to become true Israelites. They do not need to move to geographical Israel to become Israelites, but they need only move to Jesus, the true Israel. They do not need to be circumcised in flesh, but in the heart by Christ's death, which is their true circumcision, since it cuts them off from the old world and sets them apart to the new. Gentiles do not need to make pilgrimage to Israel's temple to get near to God, but they merely need to make pilgrimage to Jesus, the true temple. You see, the actual food laws of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus, who, who now was the one who marked God's people as in or out and made them clean. And remember that distinction that I had made. The actual commandment of God had been fulfilled, which means that the undergirding for all of those man-made traditions was gone as well. And yet that instinct, that instinct to want to go beyond what God has said, to make it about something more before one can be, can be considered a full member or before we'll count them so, at least in our hearts, is something that the church has never been rid of. And so just as we end, some questions I want us to consider. What would be some of the requirements that we construct that people must meet before we'll count them as full members of God's people. Now, I'm not talking about official membership at our church or the church that you're part of. I'm talking about the things that we require in people before we'll fully engage with them, before we'll fully pursue them or fellowship with them, before we'll count them as full members, fully to equal to us in our hearts and our minds. Who are the quote-unquote Gentiles in my world and in your world that God wants us to welcome to the table of our lives? Where does God want to transform us into becoming welcomers? Where does He want His Word and His truth to take priority in our lives over our prejudices and how we hold our preferences? You know, I think that it's as if He's saying to us, listen, Quit letting what you think about yourself and what you think about others take priority and let what I say about you and what I say about others define things. You want to know who you are? Oh, believer in Jesus, you are a child of God. And I have welcomed you to my table. And you want to know who they are over there? Those believers of Jesus on the opposite end of the spectrum of you from whatever things you hold over them? They are a child of God too. And I've put you both together at my same big table. Welcome one another as I have welcomed you. You see, I think that God wants His church to be one that has a range of backgrounds, social statuses, opinions on sports, food, clothing, convictions about politics, theological emphases, thoughts about education and relationships, and on and on and on, and yet still loves one another and welcomes one another because these aren't the things that unite us, that there's something still higher than all of them that can put the transcend them all, put them in their proper place, and give us a unity despite our varied diversity, right? Enabling a context for, to have those hard conversations where we disagree and the ability for us to repent where we've handled things wrongly, not desiring to force others to become just like 
like us, but praising God for our differences, learning about them, cheering each other on, and having this mutual welcoming of one another because of our fundamental unity in Christ. I see one of the many ways that, that God is working in our lives is transforming us into becoming welcomers. Right? People who are willing to open the table of their lives, their time, their love, their energy to those who are different than them and who they may never experience uniformity with, but yet are united in and around Jesus Christ. May God grant this to be true of us, friends. Let's pray. My oh Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You do not leave us on our own and in the dark to figure out how You want us to live, Lord. We thank You that even though it's challenging for us, even though it's hard at times, that You don't leave us alone, but You give us direction. You give us Your Word. And more than that, Lord, You've given us Your Holy Spirit. Would You empower us to love one another? Would You empower us to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us? Lord God, we pray for help to remember that. We pray for help to remember how fully and how freely You have welcomed us into Your kingdom and to Your table. Who are we, Lord? Who are we to be in here this morning? Who are we to deserve a seat at Your table? But You gave it to us. You welcomed us in. Help us now to be those who in turn go and welcome one another. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.